What the earth are you doing? I'm shitposting you. It's great fun. Stop at once! The internet is a very dangerous place! It's alright, Q. I'm behind 007 proxies! Welcome to The Absolute State, a podcast by the investigative shitposters at Left Coast Right Watch. Each week, we'll bring you coverage from the absurdly dangerous to the dangerously absurd. I'm LCRW's Editor-in-Chief, Abner Hauge. Well, folks, did you miss me? After a week-long break, we're back. This episode, we'll talk to Tony Boswell, host of the Minion Death Cult podcast from San Bernardino County, about a recent fatal police shooting. And then, we're going to have a long talk about the absolute state of the far right with Spencer Sunshine, one of our favorite anti-fascist scholars. But first, let's hear from independent journalist Vishal Singh with a story from Santa Monica about something called Patriot Pride Month. So we're here with uh, Vishal Singh, one of our favorite journalists in all of Southern California. So uh, Vishal, tell us what's been going on with the Planned Parenthood in Santa Monica. Yeah, sure. And thank you for the very warm welcome. So basically, a couple weeks back, we saw a, a group formed by a, a far-right extremist named Chris Reyes called Baby Lives Matter. Um, and they've been targeting local Planned Parenthoods. I think they did Riverside a little while back. They did uh, Highland Park. And, and they've been coming to or near the Planned Parenthood in Santa Monica. I got word of their their first um, Santa Monica protest. Um, it was on July 9th. The far right basically said they're going to have their rally at the Santa Monica Pier, which is a about... 10 15 minute walk away from the third street promenade where the planned parenthood is located by the time i was there they were already setting up and there were a number of far-right militants doing quote-unquote security for the rally some of them wearing proud boys colors at least one of them they pretty much kept a tight ship um, along with capital rider tony moon who was also doing his own kind of uh self-appointed security work The day before the rally actually took place, Chris Reyes, who is the chief organizer, um, posed in front of the Santa Monica Planned Parenthood holding like a Baby Lives Matter banner and uh, wearing a Proud Boys shirt. Chris Reyes himself isn't a member of the Proud Boys. He's just kind of a a fanboy, very close friends with a lot of them. He put out the invite on social media, and I guess some of them came along with, you know, other various militants and Christian nationalists. Um, they marched getting into kind of a lot of arguments with bystanders, but for the most part, um, there wasn't any serious violence. There was an incident where angry bystander kind of like got angry and walked up to them, and one of the quote-unquote security for the far right kind of shoved him. But um, besides that, the only other incident I saw was when the far right was marching back to the the Santa Monica Pier, where they started their rally, they actually, like, shoved a random black bystander who was just trying to walk past them, and that guy very clearly didn't want to get into any trouble with these guys, tried to walk away, and 
it happened in front of a Nike store, and the security guards at the Nike kind of got aggro in defense of the random bystander. And then police and Tony Moon kind of tried to de-escalate both the respective sides. Most of the time, Tony Moon was kind of just walking around harassing journalists. He and the rest of the far right seemed to be under some effective discipline in terms of like not starting fights. Um, there also wasn't really a substantial counter-protest. I, um, most of their interactions that were negative were with either journalists who were covering them or bystanders. Following that, a week later, Chris Reyes and the same crew um, organized something called Patriot Pride, kind of like uh, co-opting you know, Pride Month. They didn't say whether or not they were going to go to the Planned Parenthood, but because of what happened the week before, a lot of abortion rights protesters rallied in front of the Planned Parenthood and kind of made a, a defensive protest there. So the far right did not get the numbers that they were hoping for. The difference was that the quote-unquote security didn't show up. They didn't have Proud Boys there this Saturday. They didn't have the far right militants there, which drew criticism from other right-wing demonstrators who were there who kind of complained that there was no like security there. Not that they were ever under threat, I think. Was only one um, detainment by the police, and it was of a right-wing demonstrator who had um, who was involved in like a shipping situation with a female counter-protester who was just like blowing a horn at them, trying to drown out their their nonsensical speeches. And that gentleman was cited and released almost immediately. He had, I think, two or three knives on him, and those were confiscated temporarily um, after the protest was over. Um, I was across the street with some of the journalists just getting some drinks and some food and decompressing, and I noticed uh, the man who they had detained was talking to the police, so I took out my phone started filming them from across the street, and they returned his knives to him and then gave him a fist bump. Um, I'm not sure what he was cited with, but um, the individual in question, I believe his name is Blake Schultz, he did tell me that he was cited with something. I think that's assault or battery or something, but... He didn't seem too worried about it. The police didn't seem too worried about it. Besides that, the only other violent incident that occurred was in the middle of that incident. Sean Vector Carmichael, Cat with News, one of our uh, fellow contributors, um, had his phone knocked out of his hand by uh, a known far-right extremist, Jairo Rodriguez. Um, Sean attempted to confront Jairo, and the police got very aggro with Sean, started shoving Sean, and Jairo just ran away. That's the quick rundown overview of kind of the whole thing. You know, I think they they have more rallies planned. It seems like it's ramping up almost every week. There seems to be some kind of right-wing demonstration, whether it's about uh, a trans panic, whether it's about abortion, whether it's about just anything. I mean, even Saturday, they were like, their speeches could not keep any kind of consistency. They were just ranting about things like the Federal Reserve, Rockefellers, Soros. At one point, they were yelling about the Georgia Guidestones being bombed and celebrating and cheering that on. Like, they, they really couldn't keep track of what they were even there for. I never got a clear vision of what Patriot Pride as an event even was about. Yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. Do they, does it feel like they're getting more amped up to do violence or they're trying to network more and, like, polish their image? What's your take on them? Um, they seem to be more focused on image right now than the street brawls of last year. Clearly, the 
the more violent um, extremists are, they're still amped up, they're still ready to fight, they're still looking for an excuse. But it seems like some of the organizers, they seem to be focused on a disciplined approach to where they just get publicity, they get eyeballs, and I think they're really targeting kind of the, the normie conservative audience and trying to pull them in and trying to say, hey, we're here, uh, we're, we're rallying against these issues that lots of traditionalist conservatives are angry about or celebratory about in terms of Roe v. Wade being overturned and just, just trying to build momentum again. And I would say they're, they're having varying degrees of success. I mean, the July 9th rally was striking. There was decent numbers there. There, were, there was a militant showing there. But then the Saturday was, by all accounts, a complete bust on the far right side. They were outnumbered by counter-protesters. Um, they're infighting about it right now. They were not happy with the organizers there. Um, so I, I, it's hard to say. Um, because they're kind of incompetent. So it's hard to say what their goals are because it's, I can't tell if they're actually changing their goals or just failing to achieve certain goals. From what I can see, the potential for violence is clearly there, but they're much more focused on intimidation and um, just trying to get their brand recognition out. That was a really excellent summary. Um where can folks find you and your work? And uh... Yeah, um, well, you can always find my reporting and my angry uh, rants on Twitter at EPS underscore reports. Um, I'm, also on, um, I'm also on Daily Costs, where I do a lot of my writing. I also have a website, which has you know, just a collection of most of my writings, EPSreports.com, but... Most of the time, if you want up-to-date reporting from me, just check my Twitter. Well, thanks so much for giving us this update, and um, we'll make sure to pester you to come back on the show as soon as we can. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, great to be on. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Abner. Thanks again to Vishal. Be sure to follow their work if you're interested in Southern California politics. We also recommend Vishal's article from last May on the Tri-County Sheriff's Forum. Link in the show notes. It's got a lot of important context for our next story from San Bernardino. This story is about a police shooting, so strong content warning for gun violence. On July 16th, Rob Adams was working security in a parking lot. It's unclear for who yet. A blue sedan pulled up slowly nearby. Adams walked slowly towards the car. Suddenly, two San Bernardino uniformed cops got out. Startled, Adams turned to run away. Almost immediately, one of the cops shot Adams, who ran a few steps and then collapsed. Police said Adams had a gun in his hands, but if he did, he didn't point it at the officers. Rob Adams was 23. To talk about this shooting in more depth and San Bernardino policing, we reached out to a local, Tony Boswell of the Minion Death Cult podcast. All right, so we're here with Tony from the Minion Death Cult podcast. Uh, unfortunately, we're not here to talk about melted right-wing brain stuff uh, today. We're here to talk about something a lot more serious and heinous and depressing. What can you tell me about this shooting that happened 
Yeah, uh, it's, that's that's uh, the 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 nicest way we can make the the most vanilla way we can say because it, it's definitely more brutal than um a lot of the things we've seen. On July sixteenth, gentleman by the name of Rob Adams was working security, hanging out in a parking lot, not not harming anybody. Um, basically, just doing his job. And as he's doing that, an unmarked, which I've I've never seen something like this before, an unmarked police car that doesn't even look like your average unmarked police car. It's like it's like a factory blue even pulls up um, and they proceed to jump out of the car. Rob realizes something's going on immediately, takes off, doesn't get very far because they immediately shoot him. They open fire. There's no standoff. There's nothing. It almost appears as if they're shooting as they are exiting the car. As they are getting out of the car, the guns are drawn and shots are being fired. And they, they, they murdered him there right then and there. Um, and what's more scary about this is uh, this – is nowhere to be found. Um, the news is not covering this. The only reason we know about this is because somebody who had a security camera right there leaked the footage, and that's that's how we know about this. They were completely planning on disappearing Rob Adams like they've done before, and so this is this is nothing new from San Marino PD. We've seen this before, but it it is as cut and dry of a of a shooting as you've ever seen. Yeah, I was really shocked when I saw the video. It just seemed like. They opened the car door, and then I saw this white flash of the mm-hmm. um, exhaust from the gun, and yeah, he, he'd already been hit, it seemed like to me from the video. I mean, obviously, I don't have all the facts. Now, of course, um, they're talking about how he may have been armed, even if he was armed. I was just at the Nike outlet yesterday, and they have, they have armed security. They're reporting that he was working some sort of security job, and this is me saying this to give them the most possible, you know... For these bad faith arguments, go ahead, say that. I mean, I think we're supposed to be allowed to do that. I think we're allowed. To, we're supposed to be allowed to have have a weapon. There, at no point did he draw the weapon. At no point did he point the weapon at at the completely unmarked car. This was just a straight up execution right away. And like I said, uh, they've they've Sam Reno PD has a history of doing things like this. Uh, three years ago, we had a case of a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Bender, who they shot in the back and hospitalized, and he just disappeared. There was no evidence of the arrest, no evidence of the shooting, no evidence of him being checked into a hospital. He was in a hospital as a John Doe, in a coma. They did not. Con- he had his ID and everything on him. It wasn't until much later on where he was tracked down and found in the hospital. And then they had to address it. Lawrence is free now, thanks to a lot of work of some really hardworking people in San Marino, especially uh, Black Power Collective and Lin Empire. They're doing a lot of work out there, a lot of court support. So th- they have a history of doing this. Um, and they're already villainizing Rob, just like they did to, uh, of, of all names, to Marcus Bender last year when they shot him in front of a liquor store, who, if anything, may have had a phone on him. But they are making Rob out to be a threat, as they do. San Marino PD has a history of this. Uh, we've seen it time and time again. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where we're at right now. And there's, there's not much we know. We don't know the names of the officers yet. They're not telling us anything I've reached out to um, Representative Pete Aguilar, who's like our congressman, who actually like we have mutual friends. Nothing from there. Of course, nothing from uh, Mr. Gavin Newsom. This is still his state. Nothing from him. Uh, nothing from the mayor of San Bernardino. Their offices seem just as taken back by this as I was when I called them. Yeah, there was one um, statement I saw on Twitter just from a from a city councilman. Was that right? Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, uh, Ben Reynoso. Uh-huh. 
I could quote it right here. Um, my thoughts on the Adams shooting are as follows. He was carrying a firearm when an unmarked Nissan Altima approached. The police exited an unmarked vehicle and Adams fled. Adams did not aim his weapon or fire a single shot. Uh, police began firing immediately upon exiting the unmarked vehicle, mm-hmm. striking Adams in the back while fleeing, which he ultimately died from. Then he says, being that Adams never aimed the gun, was approached by an unmarked vehicle, and was shot while fleeing, therefore plausible criminality does not exist. In the end, and Rob Adams is dead at the hands of San Bernardino Police Department. Supreme Court case Tennessee v. Gardner, the fleeing felon rule, 1985. In Tennessee v. Gardner, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a Tennessee statute that permitted police to use deadly force against a suspected felon fleeing arrest. So, yeah, what they did, yeah, likely very illegal. That's what they're really hanging their hats on is that that felony law. I'm getting a lot of fucking people in my DMs talking about well, he's a felon, he shouldn't have a gun. And it's like, okay, cool. So at what point between them pulling up in a Nissan Altima, pulling up in a blue Nissan Altima, getting out and opening fire, did they know that he was a felon? And since when was the the punishment for the crime of a felon owning a gun execution? None of this makes sense. They're going to try to make us forget this like they did Mark Bender. They successfully made us forget this like they did Mark Bender. They painted him as a villain right away, and they got away with it. They got away with it. And we can't let him hap- this happen again. This video is pretty undisputable. Except even, even, if, even if that was a gun, even if he had a, an, an AK strapped to his back, he never pointed at anybody. None of this makes sense. This looks almost like they were hunting for sport. It felt like that. It felt like they were hunting for sport in that cheating fashion too. It's like nothing I've seen before because like I said, on Mark Carr, doing nothing but like possibly working security possibly at some sort of like gambling establishment at the end of the day I, that's that seems like he's minding his business from whatever they're doing and so yeah there's no justifying this no matter what he was doing who cares if you're a cop supposedly your job's not to shoot him it's to arrest him exactly exactly say what you will about the carceral system this is completely outside of even the bounds of the legal system we have None of the things that they're pinning on him even qualify for anything remotely close to life in prison, let alone, you know, firing squad. Um, There's just no, it's just really wild to see. Well, we'll keep following this case. Um, I kind of wanted to ask for a little bit more background on San Bernardino PD. What are they like? The sheriff's department is one of the largest departments in the country, being as that San Bernardino County is is the largest county in the country. Between them and the police department, when we have actions out here, it's pretty clear that they're like jealous of their LAPD comrades and they are ready to get in the shit. They pull out all the stops. They got all the stuff out there. And it is still a small enough community to where we know, we know they, they, they know us. They work closely with Riverside PD, who are notoriously awful, uh, with, with Sheriff Bianco, who is a, a, known, a known white supremacist. They're all, they're all working together and they're all, they're all there with LAPD too. So they are as bad. My, my first encounter with um, San Marino PD uh, was when I was a teen after they broke my dad's arm in four places for, for uh, rolling a yellow light. Between that and the way that the carceral system and the way we treat uh, things like addiction and um, rehabilitation and felons, um, they basically ruined his life that day. They have a history of it. And they know that they live in a big place with lots of money and lots of crime going in and out. They get to do all the, the cool things they see on TV without any of the coverage. 
without any of the coverage. No one's holding them accountable like they would LAPD. Not that they're being held accountable, but you know what I'm saying? Like they don't get the coverage. So they get to go, they get to just run amok. They just get to act wild. And they do. With the record that I've seen, there are probably countless individuals who will who just never been documented. And that's terrifying to think about. If this was happening to any other minority in any other country, there would be UN intervention. The rate at which black people are murdered in America by the state is astronomical. And the history that of America taking black lives, I don't use the word genocide loosely. This is a genocide that we are witnessing. We are witnessing a genocide. Once people are slain on video and written off at this rapid rate, it happens multiple times a week, multiple times a day even, throughout this country. That's a genocide. And if it was happening any other minority in any other place in the world, we would be raising money for it. We would be, you know, we'd be sending, you know, how much was it to, to Ukraine? We'd be, we'd be, they'd be doing that. But that's not the case. Reminds me of like Operation Condor or something. Mm-hmm. And like that's that, and like that stuff is more prevalent than we, I think, we even know. <laughs> Could you tell us about the action that's planned um, in response to this video coming out? Um, yeah, so we're going to have a, a, a vigil in March um, this Saturday, July twenty third at six p.m. in downtown San Bernardino at the City Hall steps. It's pretty easy to find, um, and I'm, I really want to encourage people from the surrounding areas to come out here. Uh, because a lot of people maybe don't realize that they're being impacted by San Bernardino County and it isn't like a nationwide problem. And this is a particularly heinous one. I, I really want to encourage, you know, my, my friends and, and people from San Diego and LA to come through on Saturday, July 23rd, 6 PM. Pretty easy to find. So if you have any questions, um, I'm, I'm available. All right. And we'll make sure to have your Twitter and, um, your podcast Twitter in the show notes as well as well as a link to the flyer for that um event but first um could you tell us a little bit about your regular podcast i think uh our our listeners are are will will, will like it a lot yeah uh, i've been doing this this fun little podcast for about the past four years with my my partner um alexander edwards and it's called minion death cult and what we do is we basically like we analyze kind of right-wing reactionaries through the lens of like facebook comments um the comment section and what we're really show what we're really trying to like illustrate is um it's not just like proud boys you know those aren't that's not our biggest problem too it's also it's also just your really racist aunt it's also you know your cousin who's in my dms right now uh talking about how rob shouldn't have had gold teeth if he didn't want to get shot and that's a very prominent thing and um Luckily, we've been doing it long enough to where we, we do it in a fashion to where um, hopefully you can have some laughs along the way. Um, and it's it's a good time. Yeah. So we, we just kind of like – we basically just dunk on, on like libs and racists and have a, have a fun time. All right. You hear that, everybody? Check out Minion Death Cult. It's the funniest fucking podcast <laughs> name ever. I love it. It sucks because it's so real. It's just like, the, it, it, like you think it's a stupid name until you see like – a little minion meme of them being like awfully violently racist or something, you know, and it's like, Oh, this is, this is a real, a real thing. Oh no. Yeah. No. If, if you yeah. know this kind of propaganda, then you know how, how well you guys nail this stuff. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, hopefully it'll be more cheerful news next time we have you back on. But um, in the meantime, everybody stay active. And uh, thanks so much for coming on again. Seriously. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Thanks again to Tony for helping us make sense of this. Again, there will be a vigil for Rob Adams on Saturday. Details in the show notes, and we'll have links to where you can check out Minion Death Cult. We heartily recommend it. Last up this week, we'll talk with Spencer Sunshine, one of our favorite anti-fascist scholars. You might have read his joint effort with Pop Mob, 40 Ways to Fight Fascists, Street Legal Tactics for Community Activists. So maybe first, could you give us, uh, give our viewers a little introduction on um, the work you do? Uh, sure. I um, have been watching, writing about, and counter-organizing against the far right in the U.S. for something like 17 or 18 years now. Um, started doing it like in 1990, back in the battle days when they were... Um, I grew up in Georgia. There were a lot of Nazi skinheads in the punk rock scene, and I got interested again in the mid-aughts when I found some crypto-fascists cross-recruiting in the globalization, anti-globalization, anarchist, radical, ecological scene. So got to watch the, the rise of Trump. A lot of stuff that happened really restarted in 2010, 2009 with Obama's um, election. You know, watched how this became Trump, and then, you know, watch how this stuff is unfolding and changing the entire political landscape of the United States. Since you've been doing this so long, how do you feel about where we are now? I feel terrible. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. I feel a little more scared than Trump. I thought that Trump, the rhetoric around Trump far exceeded what he was capable of. Um, but I think that, you know, changed around 1-6, you could see that a, uh, that was changing and it's, it's changed more now because previously, especially early in the administration, it was just him. There weren't even a lot of elected officials who were Trumpists. And now there's tons of Trumpists. They've taken over the GOP in many places. They're clearly the dominant faction in that party. They have uh, escaped being sidelined by conservatives and like they are the center of the conservative movement now especially in their alliance with the christian right you know it has very pragmatically it's a very pragmatic movement made itself part of this um you know hand in glove with the trumpists uh, i do think they're kind of separate and you know now we don't have you know we always said oh there's in the past you know democrats and republicans are you know both part of the Janus face, right, two sides of the coin, and now I think it's quite different where, you know, there is a, a party that is opposed to democracy and there's a, a party in favor of capitalist democracy, right, um, which is scarier in a way. So I, I think it's a scarier situation because uh, the right doesn't need Trump anymore in a sense. I mean, and I do think he's going to be reelected in two years. Um, I hope he's not, but I do think he will. And now I'll have a really big base. And we've all seen the, you know, contempt that the Trumpists have for, um, uh, you know, not just not just democracy, not just a hostility to any kind of progressive and left wing politics, a vehement hostility to that, um, but a real willingness just to do whatever, to lie, cheat, manipulate, to get their way. So, um, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm rather dour about the future of, of the United States. You mentioned that you think the uh, 
the Trumpists and the uh, Christian right are kind of distinct groups. Um, I'm wondering if you see any tensions between those two groups and their aims, or if you feel that there's mostly just synergies there right now. I haven't really seen um, much tension, not to say if you look, I mean, I'm sure if you look closely, um, there, there will be, there always is, right, between between these things. The Christian right has a, is a very ideologically driven movement. It's been around for many decades. They've developed their own structures. Um, the Trumpists, you, you know, we've all seen how they jump from issue to issue, sometimes rather quickly. You know, there's all the, the trans transphobic panic right now. But five years ago, it was Muslims, right? The Islamophobic stuff is almost... It, it almost disappeared by 2018, right? They were just like on to the next thing. Whereas the Christian right is very, you know, they have the certain issues that they want. Abortion, obviously, um, you know, rolling back LGBTQ rights and, and ultimately instituting a theocracy, right? They want to, at the at the least, erode the church-state division and at the most, you know, they wanted to, to force this to be a Christian country. That's not the goal of the Trumpists. I mean, I'm sure they're fine with it, right? And they're happy to play along, but that's not really their goal. Um, but for now, the Christian right is incredibly pragmatic. I mean, Trump was clearly not a Christian. You know, <laughs> he was a heathen in every in every possible way. Uh, and the, at the beginning, the Christian right they even had a phrase for him. He's an imperfect vessel for their politics. So they're very Machiavellian, and uh, they're happy to to um, you know downplay any tension they have with the the Trumpist movement proper in order to achieve their goals because they you know Trump. And, and others in the movement have been willing to, uh, quite happy to uh, allow them to push their agenda further. There's this very weird synergy I've seen more and more from uh, the Groypers in particular, uh, where they've kind of started having these phrases like Christ is King that they chant, and they've tried to, seems like they're more trying to appeal to the Christian right. Um, then appeal to the the Trump base these days. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, a lot of the ideas that the the, the right wing conspiracy um, theories are themselves Christian or come out of Christianity or have like a Christian you know base they can fall back on. I mean, we've seen if people have been watching, you can see how Alex Jones has become more Christian over the years. Um, if you look at a lot of 50s and 60s anti-communism, it's almost entirely Christian once you scratch beneath the surface, which really surprised me when I when I had done that. Because you're just, you know, you hear the crazy things, oh, the communists control everything, but it's like really that they're perverting, you know, they're atheists who are trying to de-Christianize the world or whatever. Um, so I'm not surprised um, they're... Uh, you know, the alt-right, the, the fascist wing of the alt-right, there was a heavy kind of Eastern Orthodox influence for a long time. We saw it with Matthew Heinbeck, Heinbach and others. Um, a lot of the, the... We are seeing some stuff as like traditionalist Catholic uh, influence, but most of the stuff seems fairly Protestant. Um, the, the Groypers have moved on to it. The Patriot Front also quite wisely. A while ago, it was a very... At the time, I thought it was weird, but, you know, they are attending these March, March for Life marches they have also pivoted to that. Um, sometimes when an issue gets going, it's good to jump on it, right? Um, so I don't think that the, the, the Christian stuff is not in opposition to any of these white nationalists and similar conspiratorial views. Um, I think it's a cynical or an ungenuine. I mean, I don't know how ungenuine it is. I think they're, they're pivoting politically. It's not that they're not Christians. I'm sure most of them are. 
Uh, the interesting thing to me is that this sort of sidelines the more heathen style elements of white nationalists, which tends to drive like the eco-fascist stuff, right? Those people aren't Christians. I've noticed that there's a big tension between the Christ is King crowd and the blood and soil Nazi pagan uh, groups online. They they really don't like each other. Is that a point of division that people on the left can exploit somehow? I mean, a sophisticated and well-placed person can always exploit those tensions. I think the heathens are so, they're not big enough, I think, to really make that a useful division. Although I do think ecological issues, people who believe there is an ecological crisis, will become more and more important for the far right, like they just have to. And that will grow the, the, the Volkish, heathen, fascist, heathen, eco-fascist faction, for sure. But even assuming there is like an, a white nationalist ecology, they can always just move back to being like, immigration is bad, so we need to, you know, pre- to preserve the environment, we need to stop immigration, and you don't need the heathen stuff for that. Now, the more sort of esoteric fascist stuff that we saw really start, you know, peak, peakish around, you know, with the height of the alt-right 2016 to maybe 2018, that that stuff is really kind of fading away or, or being sidelined. I mean, it's not going away, but like, when was the last time you heard about Greg Johnson and countercurrents? It's just, or Richard Spencer, who's maybe not properly part of that, but definitely adjacent to it, right? This kind of thinking, the, the European-derived stuff is kind of like on the margins now. Well, I'm curious about what groups you feel are really on the ascent right now. Um, just what, since since the alt-right's kind of passe, what's kind of emerged and took it took its place? Well, I mean, it's funny, and we saw this as early as 2019, is that the, uh, aside from the big massacres, right, which the Buffalo one was the first one in a couple of years of this sort of like proper alt-right massacre, I guess, where they're, they're live-streaming it, putting the manifesto out, um, that as early as 2019, the most um, aggressive elements had actually floated a little more moderate. So this is like Proud Boys and what used to be Patriot Prayer. And I mean, this is what we saw in 1-6, right, where you have this, you know, very combative movement, but is politically... You know, within the within the ideological parameters of the Democrat of the Republican Party, Democratic Party, hey, it could be. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm far. I mean, honestly, I'm far more scared of, of these um, the sort of mainstream of the Trumpists right now than I am of organized white supremacists. Um, which is funny because what I've done historically is look at the organized white supremacists, but I think that the the Trumpists are so violent at this point they have so many more people and they're so motivated that it just just by their sheer size and willingness to be aggressive and aggressiveness that that's that's definitely where i think the center at i mean think if you're an 18 year old and you want to you know you're a right winger and you want to get really involved you're not going to jump into the alt-right like you might have in 2016 you know you're going to join the proud boys or whatever other other brawling group um you know, unless you're really ideologically committed to anti-Semitism or something and then join, you know, NSC 131. But that's still a fairly small group. So, I mean, I guess you join Patriot Fine if you want to be doxxed and, um, <laughs> and lose your job. Or, I don't know who joins that group, right? I mean, it's basically a, a, a honeypot. I mean, 
what are they doing and why would why would new people join i don't get it i i don't know and i've noticed that the the mega or ultra mega crowd they insist loudly and very repeatedly that that patriot front consists entirely of fed for whatever reason well, they seem to be they have no problem recruiting people. I mean, I'm sure it's like the ISO was, or people are just recruiting people and churning through them. But I guess people are excited about getting jammed into a U-Haul and then marching around without announcing it because, you know, you're not going to be able to do it if you do announce it and then run away. I mean, I guess that's appealing to somebody. Um, <laughs> well, I don't like to kink shame, so... <laughs> oh, yeah, fair, fair. You make a good point there. Um, this must be, you know, I don't know, maybe the smell of U-Hauls or something. People uh, make them move at a certain point in their life, and they're like, moving blankets, you know. They're like, oh, baby, let's put a moving blanket down. Uh, which, you know, that's cool, man. That's cool. Totally, like, whatever works for you. Um, you know, Patriot Front's going to be really interesting in the future because so many people have gone through it that it's going to be... Um, one of these things that 10, 20, 30 years down the line, there's going to be all these, you know, well-known or influential right-wing figures, and they're all going to have started or passed through Patriot Front. And it's going to be, you know, some people are going to have gone through it and be like, we need to be more radical. We need to be more revolutionary. We tried that. And it's nonsense. Some of them are going to be like, that was we were too marginalized by what we were doing. We need to be, you know, try a more moderate, more popular approach. We already tried the, like, you know, the white nationalist approach. So, um, you know, and already people are spinning out of it. This doesn't mean they're spinning out of white nationalism. It just means they're tired of the group. Um, so I think as much as it seems kind of like a joke and it's not very politically influential, I think, I think it's going to be influential as an introductory device almost uh, for a lot of right-wing people. The way the John Birch Society was there... I, I was like writing down, there's like a, a, maybe a dozen well-known white supremacist figures who went through the Birch Society. They get it, they got into it, and they learned the narrative. You know, there's an elite, secretive elite controlling everything, and the Birchers were like against um, the civil rights movement, you know. Um, so they already, you know, pretty pretty right-wing on, on racial questions, and they wouldn't say the Jews were behind things, but they, they gave the whole... They gave the whole narrative an outline. So lots of, you know, I think it's going to be the same thing, just the way, just the way that people like, I don't know, Tom Metzger and Ben Kloss and the Church of the Creator, like, went through the Birch Society. We're going to see the future leaders of the, you know, various factions of the far right having gone through Patriot Fund. You know, I was just going to mention Tom Metzger. It's, I mean, what you're saying about uh, the fallout from this group just reminds me of what ended up happening with him and his trajectory. And he was a pretty bright guy. I mean, he was, his ideology was really interesting. It's funny how he's associated with the most, like, sort of violent people because he, re he recruited the Nazi skinheads. But that was also part of his acumen that he could use this as a base for his revolutionary politics. Yeah, at some point he got, like, I think he won the Democratic primary in Southern California for a national level race. Like, it was, like, pretty impressive. And he had been a Klan leader. He'd worked with David Duke before that. And then he had been more moderate before that. Like I said, he was in the John Birch Society. He was Christian identity. So, yeah, his – and it's interesting. Sometimes you see these small kind of cult-following cult leaders. And you, as you read their history, you realize that at one point they were successful enough mainstream people who just headed into a more radical direction. 
um, you know, like, like that they were elected officials at some point or, or whatever, or they were mainstream journalists. I know this happens sometimes, right? Uh, like Paul Nealon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a good, that happened quick, though. But yeah. Um, you know, because they show, because they are, they are good organizers or speakers. You know, it's not that they don't have charisma or appeal or know how to work a crowd, right? But then they get frustrated with what they're doing for whatever reason and, and move into a more radical position. I mean, Metzger was, was a kind of sophisticated guy. You know, it's funny. He recruited a lot of leftists, too. I mean, I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, stories to be learned from him. He, the, uh, one of his editors is paper, paper, Wyatt Caldenberg was a former Trotskyist. Um, another one, John slash Gary Jewell had been an official in the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. He had been on the, the GEB, the ruling body. He helped run the prisoner support program for many years before he, um, floated into third positionism and joined up with Metzger. So, you know, you can, there's an appeal, and we all kind of know this, that um, a, a more sophisticated person on the far right, especially with third positionist style politics, can draw in maybe maybe not huge chunks of it, but draw in important figures from the left. And, and people from the left tend to be a little more balanced and have a little bigger. It's a different way of thinking, and they can take that mindset in with them to the right, and that, that adds something new to the right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of these guys just who kind of cross-pollinated from other areas of life just became some of the most clever operatives. Um, I, I wanted to get back to the Proud Boys just a little bit. Um, I'm very worried about how much, how J6 didn't seem to hobble their organizing, especially on the West Coast. I mean, I would see them out at rallies everywhere. Now they're attacking drag queen story hours in a very coordinated way in their little affinity groups or whatever you call them. And um, I'm just wondering where you think the group is at at this point. I agree with you. They're incredibly resilient. I don't quite know their secret to their success. I mean, they position themselves very well, right, where there's just there's like some overlap into neo-Nazism and white supremacist, white supremacist stuff, but they've become, you know, totally acceptable to the Trumpists, right? So so they're an accepted, sort of like the Groypers, like we see how far politics have shifted where these these groups can be, you know, totally accepted, you know, within the Trumpists, maybe probably a little more than the Groypers. Um, they're clearly being... It, you know, it's um, it seems like it would be easy enough for there to be federal charges against the group for national, especially as coordinating of the disruptions of the um, the, the drag, um, you know, story story hours. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's obviously worrisome. I mean, we thought that group would break down so many times. Um, it may be simply that they are. If you if you want violent aggressiveness and you have these politics, it's just your place to go, right? Like like that much violence would be there anyway. It just wouldn't be in one organization, but it's hard to tell. So, yeah, I mean, this is a group, you know, we'll see what the prosecutions um, result in in one six. If 40 of the, you know, people go down, that's going to have an effect. Um, but the Southern Poverty Law Center and their annual um, census of far-right groups 
like that came out at the beginning of this year, the Proud Boys um, had the largest gain of any of the groups, even while the Oath Keepers shrunk. So there was like two different reactions. It looks like there's two different reactions to one six. I mean, we think that that's the the reason if if that's the reason for these things. So. It happens sometimes. Um, the militia movement grew the year after the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people and made the, the public disgusted at the militias, but their movement expanded um, for a year. So I agree with you. We don't have a lot of activity of them out east. Um, I think it is more of a, a Western, Western U.S. phenomenon. Thanks again to Spencer. Our interview ran longer than we expected. We'll bring you part two next week, and check out the show notes to read his work. And that does it for this week's edition. You might be asking, hey Abner, how's your break? Sadly, I spent most of the week arguing with mechanics to fix my car. Hopefully, I'll be back on the road by the time you hear this. I want to thank everyone who pitched in to help me with repairs. You really helped keep me and Dino afloat this month. But I've had to leave the fundraiser up as it cost more to fix than the first estimate. I put in about 25,000 miles a year and it adds up. If you're able to help contribute and offset my costs, that would be great. Link in the show notes. The Absolute State and all Left Coast Right Watch journalism is supported by listeners and readers like you. If you like what we do, you can set up a recurring donation at patreon.com slash lcrw or check out our pinned tweet at lcrwnews on Twitter. That's lcrwnews on Twitter. Your donations keep the lights on, and so does your feedback and sharing our stories with others. Thanks again to all of our supporters. Until next time, don't despair. Prepare. Seven games, bombs at Casino Royale. They came to save the world and win the gal at Casino Royale. Heavenly spot, the seventh one is going to a place where it's terribly 